Man, do you love Jesus? If you don't, in exactly 39 minutes and 18 seconds, you will. I'm excited for what God is going to do tonight. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, and specifically verse 8. One of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture. If you need a tattoo inspiration, I'm about to give it to you. I evidently lack no inspiration when it comes to tattoos. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We're going to read it. This is the writings of a man named Paul, but we really know it was God who wrote it through Paul. He says this, but God demonstrates his, his own love. Listen to me. God, through the pen of Paul, is making a delineation here. There's, there's the love that you're used to, and then there's a different kind of love, and that's the love that God operates in. There's a whole nother kind of love. It's not the love that leaves you, takes you high and leaves you dry. It's not the love that makes big promises and under delivers. This is a love that will deliver you over and over and over. It's his own kind of love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, still sinners, in the middle of it, oblivious to him, ignorant of his presence, still sinners, Christ died for us. I got a simple message on my heart tonight, but I pray that God uses this simple message to touch you in a profound way. I'm gonna preach a message that I'm simply calling this, God goes looking. God goes looking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you now for the moments that we share. Lord, we know that it's your presence Isaiah 10, 27 says that it's the anointing that breaks the yoke of bondage. Lord, I thank you for amazing services. I thank you for quality musicians and excellent singers and good preaching. But Lord, we know none of that breaks the yoke of bondage. It's the anointing. It's the spirit of God. It's the hand of God. And God, I just ask that you would come and do what I cannot do in these next couple moments. God, you're the magic. You're the magic, God. God, I'm helpless without you. Lord, would you put me on like a glove and do what only you can do? And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said, come on. Amen, amen. Come on. Woo! You know it's good when I'm already crying. You know it's good. Have you ever, have you ever tried to subtly get someone's attention? You ever tried to say, I know that's a rhetorical question. You have to go, yeah, I have, Keenan. No, it's a rhetorical question. Calm down, Jimmy. Calm down. Okay. But have you ever tried to subtly get someone's attention? I have. And I remember one moment, it really came back to bite me in the old derriere. Okay. And that was when I was in elementary school. Now, for those of you who are looking at me with a little bit of a side eye, you're thinking I'm kind of strange. Uh, let me give you a little bit of insight into my upbringing. I was either homeschooled or private Christian schooled my entire life. Okay. Hence the reason I got tattoos. I needed to look like I had a testimony. Okay. I needed to look like God had done something in my life. No, for real, my testimony is that God kept me from having to have one. That's really my testimony. And that's the best testimony you can have. I'm unashamed of that. Unashamed of that. That's what God can do in your life. Don't you dare believe you got to go down that path. 
God can take you where he's called you. But anyway, I, I want to take you back to a moment. I was, I was in private Christian school, and the staff and faculty, they sent out an announcement that there was going to be a school-wide play that was going to take place a few months later. And so, you know, auditions are held. So I mosey my little elementary self over to auditions, and I tried out for the play. And the play was called Giddy Up, Get Along, Gideon, okay? It was this, only the Christians laughed. Gideon is a Bible character, and it's, it, we were doing his story, but set in like the Wild West, okay? So it's giddy up, get along, Gideon, and I go down there, and I try out, and a couple weeks later, the ballot comes out to let everybody know what role they got, and to, somehow, by the grace of God, Unbeknownst to me, I landed the lead in this play. Your boy was Gideon and giddy up Gideon. It's still my claim to fame to this day. I've been going around the world telling people all about giddy up Gideon. So all of a sudden, you know, I land the lead role. My academics go out the door, right? I am studying for this play. I am doing everything I can to get in character. Finally, the night of the life performance comes. And I remember... You have to understand, I'm in practically every single scene. I have almost every line. I even sang a solo in the play all by myself. You know, some people saying I sang it so low that no one could hear me. No, everyone heard me. Okay, I made sure of it. All right. But I sang a solo. And I remember this one particular moment in the play. We were about three-fourths of the way through this play. For those of you who are mathematically challenged, that just means most of the way through the play. Okay. Almost done, three-fourths. So I'm in this moment, I'm in this scene, and it was me and one of my good friends, right? And while my friend was giving me his lines, I did what my acting coach told me I should never do, and I turned my attention to the crowd, okay? And what my eyes landed on took my breath away, okay? The most beautiful girl my first grade eyes had ever laid eyes on. Baby, they were my first grade eyes, not my 27-year-old eyes, okay? Put the claws away, all right? Put the eyebrows down, as Devin likes to tell Nat Natalia. So I remember I saw this girl, and I, I, time froze, you know? And I thought, man, how do I get this girl's attention. Like, I need to get her to notice me. But here's the, here's the thing I forgot in that moment, and I need to let you in on. Um, I'm a Clark, okay? And Clarks are not known for two things. We are not known for being smooth, and we are not known for being coordinated whatsoever. I'm doing my best to not fall off this stage right now, okay? Not known for being smooth or coordinated. So what I, I didn't have a lot of moves in the whole move department. You know, Slick Rick over here wasn't, okay? But what I did have was the fact that I had stayed up late a few times while my mom and dad were fast asleep, and I'd watched a few MTV music videos, okay? <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? I think I just dated myself. I just aged myself. Back when MTV was actually about music, you know what I'm saying? My little Christian school self stayed up late while mom and dad were asleep, and I watched these music videos. And what little Keenan took away from these music videos was that anytime the quote-unquote, in my mind, cool guy would bob his head when the beat would drop, women just seemed to instinctively flock to him, right? They just came running like the salmon of Capistrano, right? They came, dumb and dumber, they came out of nowhere. So I thought, you know what, I may not have much, but I got a neck, and I can move it. Let's do it. So I'm in this scene with my friend. He's giving me his lines. I see this girl. All this happens in like a nanosecond, right? And I'm like, all right, let's pull out the move. And this is literally what I did. 
No music, no nothing, okay? I don't look like JB or Usher at all, okay? I look like more like a, like a little woodpecker, okay? Just pecking a hole at my best friend just in a desperate attempt to try to get this girl to notice me, okay? And I'll be honest with you. If 27-year-old Keenan could go back in time, I would wrap my arm around young first-grade Keenan, my tattooed arm around young first-grade Keenan, and I would say, come here, boy, come here. I need to remind you of something. You are the lead in this play. You have every line. You are in every scene. You sing a solo, and you sing it so good, buddy. You sing it so good. To, make, to, to top that, your name is the first name on the bulletin that young girl received when she walked through the double doors of this auditorium. You see, what I forgot was that she saw me way before I ever saw her. And I came here to tell somebody, God saw you way before you ever saw him. I'm here to tell you tonight, when you didn't want God, when you didn't love God, when you had turned your back and were actively running from God, the love of God took off in a full sprint to you. Mom, this is the message of the gospel, and here's what I have found. I think a lot of people think that a relationship with God looks like us chasing God down. Us trying to get God to notice us. And what we end up doing is we turn prayer as an, into an avenue to try to be noticed. Wow. We allow our worship to become a sad attempt to get noticed. Wow. We read our Bibles in an, an attempt. You see me? I'm in Leviticus, God, in an attempt to get noticed. Leviticus will make you cuss, okay? <laughs> you ain't ready. You know what I'm talking about, all right? But we try to... We try to get God's attention and listen to me tonight. If you find yourself stuck on that rat race, I came here to tell you to take a peek over your shoulder because you will find that God has been hot on your tail this entire time. I'm here to tell you tonight, God saw you and he loved you way before you ever even knew he was there. This is the gospel. That word gospel, it means good news. The good news is this, is that you are not better at sinning than God is at forgiving. You are not better at doing the wrong thing than God is at doing the right and loving thing. That's what I'm trying to say tonight. You are not better at being bad than God is at being good. That is the good news, is that even when we are not good, God does not return evil for evil. God remains constant. Have you ever forgotten who you were? God hasn't. Some of us act like when we forget who we are, God's going to all of a sudden forget who he is in return. God is just, but listen to me, he is loving and he is gracious. And he saw you as Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 told us, while you were still in your sin. And here's the problem. Though the Bible says that, that is the hardest thing to believe. Am I the only one? That in the middle of, it's fun right now because we're all being good, right? We're in church. If you're being bad in church, like you need to get to this altar like as soon as I open it, okay? <laughs> but we're all in church. We're all being good. It feels good to talk about that when we're being good. But what about when you're being bad? In the middle of your being bad. You're not having to reminisce. You're living it out. <laughs> and in the middle of your being bad, in the middle of you doing what you swear to God you will never do ever again. In those moments, that is the hardest Thing to believe because though the gospel says it before you ever heard the gospel you heard the voice of religion 
And listen to me, they are completely different. The voice of religion, listen to me, let me break it down. The gospel is God's attempt to reach man. Religion is man's feeble attempt to reach God. And the Bible is not about man's love for God. It is all about God's love for man. It is not about man's faith in God. It is about God's faithfulness to man. Don't you dare get the script flipped. But religion would love to come and take the truth and begin to twist it as a tool not to heal you but abuse you and say that when you sin, God wants nothing to do with you. Have you ever heard that? In the middle of your mess, in the middle of your addiction, in the middle of your compromise. And listen to me, you know you're compromising. It's not like you're blissfully ignorant. I didn't know this was wrong. No, I know it's wrong and I'm doing it anyway. It's in those moments that that is the hardest thing to believe, that that voice begins to seep and creep in to your ear and tell you God's not looking at you. You're going to have to work a little harder, stay up a little bit later, tithe a little bit more, serve a little bit more, burn your spiritual candle at both ends, and then maybe at the end of your life, God will be honored by your meager little sacrifice and will let you into heaven. Oh, but that couldn't be more of a lie than you believe. Listen to me, it's a lie. And as if Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 wasn't enough to prove it, or as if Luke 15, the fact that the good shepherd, he leaves 99 sheep in order to look for the one. As if, listen to me, as if that wasn't enough, I'm going to take you and show you that this is not some New Testament idea. I want to use a law real quick, and I hope you stay with me. In theology, which theology is just academic Bible study, okay, that's what that is. In theology, there is a law that you need to use when you're interpreting scripture and reading the scripture, and it's this. The law of first mention is the law I want to use. And basically what the law of first mention is, is that when you want to understand a concept, when you want to understand a character, when you want to understand a principle in scripture, you go to where it was first mentioned okay and tonight in order to prove to you how god reacts to people in their sin i want to take you to the very first place sin is mentioned and let's see how god responds if you know anything about scripture and if you don't there's no shame in this but god the story of god it opens up in genesis and we get two good chapters and the whole thing goes to heck okay we literally get two perfect chapters and the rest is wild all right Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And all the way, all of a sudden, God opens the story, and he begins to make the heavens and the earth, and he begins to make the animals. He begins to separate the sky from the waters. He begins to do all that stuff. And then notice, this isn't even a point I want to preach. I just want to point it out, okay? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says this, that when it came to man, God stooped into the dirt and made man. This is God's first interaction with a human being. He has to stoop and get his hands dirty. I don't know about you, but that is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do to bring us back into the relationship we were born. The very first time God even starts a relationship, he has to stoop down and be willing to get his hands dirty. This has always been the message that God says, I'll come to you, and it doesn't matter how dirty my hands have to get, I'll get to you. That ain't even the point I want to show you. Genesis chapter 2 unfolds. And then all of a sudden, Genesis chapter 3, it's famously called the fall of man. There's two people in the story. There's a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. They're the very first two people God makes. And God gives them some parameters 
for operating in this place that he calls the Garden of Eden. And there's this one tree that they're not to eat of. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, of every other tree you can eat, but don't you, don't you eat of that one. And all of a sudden, many of you know the story. There's a serpent that begins to come and speak to the woman Eve. And she takes the fruit. And notice this. This is so rich. She bites it. But sin doesn't enter the world until Adam also takes a bite. This shows you the power of agreement. That it wasn't until they came into agreement that sin had legal right to enter into the equation. Who you are in agreement with matters. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden they take the fruit and then they bite it. And the Bible says this, their eyes are open to the dual realities, good and evil, righteousness and sin. And what do they do? They do what you do. They run and they hide. But in order to show you, according to the law first mentioned, where God first dealt with sin and how he dealt with it, I want to take you to Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9. If we could throw it on the screen. Thank you so much. I need my T.D. Jakes hanky right now. It's hot up in Massachusetts. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 say this. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Now notice what God does. Then the Lord God called to Adam saying this, Adam, where are you? Adam, um, Adam, Adam, where, where are you? Now I'll be honest with you. Had I not read this and you just straight up asked me, a couple years ago, hey, what did God say to Adam and Eve when he came looking for them? I would have thought this. I could have sworn it said, Adam, how dare you? Adam, how dare you? You did the one thing I told you not to do. How dare you? Where are you at, you little demon? Where are you at, you little imp? So my grandma used to call me, you imp. <laughs> What's an imp? <laughs> I still don't know. But notice... When the right reaction, I think in all of our minds, it would have been totally acceptable for God to say, Adam, how dare you? That's not God's reaction. He says, Adam, where, where are you? Where are you? Insinuating, he's looking. Can I tell you right now, this sets a precedent that when sin shows up, God goes looking. This isn't something that we find just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God has stayed the same. Listen to me. Sin didn't change God. It changed us. God reacted the same. He had always reacted. It was us who did something different. It was us who drew the, the separation. It was us who removed ourselves from relationship. God has always been this way. You know, some of us, that people will even use scripture to try to get you to think that when you sin, God won't look at you. Some people will twist scripture. I used to hear this one a lot. You know, the Bible says, Kenan, that the eyes of the Lord are too holy, 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 holy to look upon sin. That's what the Bible says. This says the eyes of the Lord are too holy to look upon sin. And I heard that over and over until finally I decided, where is that in the Bible? So I started looking and I found that it's Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. And I found out they weren't telling me the whole truth. That's not all it says. It says this, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. It says, the eyes of the Lord are too holy to look upon sin. And then Habakkuk says, so why do you? That's the next line. 
So why do you, God? Listen to me. Habakkuk sitting there saying, God, I know your eyes are too holy to look upon sin. Yet you keep doing it. He's confused. And listen to me. You will always be confused about God if you haven't run into Jesus. That was Habakkuk's issue. Jesus hadn't shown up yet. So he's sitting there looking at God saying, God, I know you're holy, but you keep doing it. You keep looking to the sinner. You keep looking to the wicked. The Bible says that he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Why do you keep doing this? And for all humanity, people have been looking at God and looking at wicked people and saying, God, why? You see it in the book of Jonah. God, why? I told them you were going to burn them. And now you're not. This is not good PR. I'm like going to have my profit license revoked, okay? This is not good publicity. Over and over we find people before Jesus shows up going, God, why? They don't understand why God goes looking. And honestly, all throughout scripture, we see this over and over, that God has been sending the same message, that God has been dropping blues clues. He's been dropping hints. He's been dropping the signs. He's been dropping the indicators of that, hey, it's not just all of a sudden Jesus shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the whispers and the utterances and the signs and the signals of Jesus, they're laid all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, if you would but take a look. And the place I want to take you just for the remaining moments that we share is an Old Testament story just so that we can see this on full display. I think it's probably the most profound place that the idea of God goes looking. It shows up on full display and it's through a small Old Testament book called Hosea. Hosea. And if I could have somebody just come and quietly play the keys, that would be amazing. But it's in an all Old Testament book called Hosea. Now you have to understand, for those of you who, who aren't really from around this neck of the woods, Hosea, listen to me, Hosea is what the Bible calls a prophet. And what a prophet is essentially is he's God's guy. He's God's mouthpiece. He speaks on behalf of God to God's people. Hosea lives 750 years before Jesus would ever show up. And God decided 750 years out, I need to give them a sign of what I'm about to do in the coming generations. So he comes to Hosea. Now you have to understand, Hosea is arguably the most famous figure in his day. Everybody knows who Hosea is. And God comes to Hosea and he says this, Hosea, um, I have an assignment for you. If you would dare to accept it, I, uh, well, I want you to, I want you to marry a prostitute. This is literally what God tells Hosea. He comes to Hosea. He says, Hosea, I got an assignment for you. It's crazy. It's out there, but I want you to marry a prostitute. Now, I'll be honest with you. Had I been Hosea, which thank God I'm not, I would have said, come again. Rather never come again. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, I would have casted every demon out I know. But listen to me. That's not the reaction of Hosea. Hosea immediately jumps into action. And can I tell you right now, that is what walking with God for years will produce in you. It'll make sure that you have a yes before you even know the question. God, the answer is yes. Now, what's your question? 
I'll go anywhere I gotta go. I'll lay down anything you want me to lay down. I'll drop anything you want me to drop and I'll pick up anything you want me to pick up. What is it you wanna do in my life, God? There's nothing off limits to you. God says, I want you to marry a prostitute. So all of a sudden, Hosea wastes no time. He begins to search high and low until finally he lands and marries a prostitute by the name of Gomer. And the Bible says they live for a while and things seem to be going. Things seem to be working out. They, have a, they begin to have a family. They got a baby boy. They have a baby girl. They have another baby boy. All of a sudden, what God told them to do seems to be working out, seems to be working, seems to be going the distance. Maybe God actually understands his own plan until finally we see that, well, this is just kind of how I imagine it. Hosea is lying in bed one night and he flips over in the middle of the night to see if Gomer's in bed and to his shock and surprise, Gomer's not even there. He gets slightly concerned as any good husband would. He jumps out of bed and begins to run through the house. Oh, maybe she's just checking on the kids. He begins to open up the kids' rooms. He begins with the firstborn. There he is, no Gomer. He goes to the little girl's room. All of a sudden, the door flies open. There she is, sound asleep, but no Gomer. He goes to the last little boy's room, flies, the door flies open. The little boy is there asleep, but there's no Gomer. So all of a sudden he goes, Hosea, don't, don't panic. Maybe she's just in the kitchen. Maybe she's whipping up a little breakfast. You know, all of a sudden Hosea runs in the kitchen, flip the light on, no Gomer. In this moment, panic begins to set in. He begins to tear the house apart. He's checking the cupboards. He's checking the bathrooms. He's checking the closets, the garage, maybe even the backyard until finally the reality of the situation hits him. She's gone. She's left him. He's now a single dad with three kids. And to make matters worse, to add insult to injury, not only is he a single dad with the responsible responsibility of raising three children, but he's also still the prophet of Israel. He doesn't just have to lead his family, he's gotta to continue to lead the nation. You can only imagine the thoughts, the voices of condemnation that begin to seep and creep into his mind in the late midnight hour. The devil comes up to him and says, you think you can lead the nation and you can't even keep your wife at home. Who do you think you are to lead God's people? We're not really sure, the Bible isn't clear on how long Hosea lives like this. But what we see is that God eventually comes to Hosea in Hosea chapter three, and he says this, um, Hosea, I got a plan. Hosea's like, God, I'm all ears. I'm all ears. What's your plan? He says, all right, here's the plan. Go find her. Go find her. Yep, go find her. And when you do, marry her again. Marry her again. Yep, marry her again. So all of a sudden, Hosea sets out on this quest. He begins to look high and low. You can imagine he's checking her favorite bakeries, her favorite boutiques. He's checking her favorite cafes, her favorite little shops, her friend's house, every little place he knows that she likes to hang out until finally he has searched everywhere and there is nowhere left to look but the place he found her to begin with. He's got to go back to that part of town, if you know what I mean. He's got to go back to the local red light district. Got to go back to where the brothels are, where the prostitution rings run wild. 
Now think about this. Let's pause the story for a moment. I know this is a tall order, but consider that you are in Hosea's shoes. You're the prophet of Israel. And you've got to go searching a part of the city no man of God should ever be seen in. Can you imagine how awkward this feels? Can you imagine how low of a stoop this feels like? But nonetheless, Hosea goes and he begins to search this part of town he is not familiar with. He's searching high, he's searching low. And you can honestly imagine he begins to interact with people who are no doubt in that industry in that lifestyle. I can imagine all of a sudden he walks up to a woman, a woman and says, ma'am, um, my name's Hosea and I'm looking for my wife, Gomer. Have you seen her? You can imagine all of a sudden she spins around. Now listen to me. This woman never would have imagined she would be having a face-to-face -face conversation with the prophet of Israel. A woman of her repute having a conversation with the man of God. All of a sudden, shock and surprise, you can imagine strikes her face and she says um no, no sir i know who you are but no i haven't seen her i knew that you got married but i haven't seen her sir if i see her i'll, I'll tell her you're looking he says tell her i'm looking all of a sudden he begins to look some more you can you can imagine he probably had to talk to some guys a guy is only in that part of town for one thing there is only one thing a man goes into that part of town looking for. And Hosea, you can imagine, has to talk to a guy who's bent over in some dumpster, who's slumped over against some back alley wall, tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, my name's Hosea. I'm looking for my wife, Gomer. You seen her? You can imagine the man spins around and he sees Hosea's face and guilt is all over his face. He goes, hey, yeah, um, yeah, oh, dang. Um, yeah, I saw her. It was a few nights ago, actually when we were done, it was probably the early morning, but it was a few, a few nights ago, a few streets that way, yeah, I saw her. Can you imagine running into a man who just slept with your wife for money? Hosea goes, I don't need to know about what happened a few nights ago, and I definitely don't want to know what happened a few streets down. I'm looking for her now. Have you seen her? Now he goes, no, man, I haven't seen her. It was a few nights ago, and listen to me, she didn't tell me y'all were still married. But I paid her. Hosea goes, listen to me. You run into her again, you tell her I'm looking. You tell her I'm looking. All of a sudden, Hosea continues his quest. And so the Bible says this, that Hosea rounds a corner. And Hosea walks up on a sea of people. And all these people are pressed in around a platform. And who is standing on the platform? But Gomer. Gomer is up on this platform, and listen to me, all Bible teachers and scholars would tell you what Hosea walked up on was an auction. He walks up on a sex slave auction, and being sold to the highest bidder is his wife. Now you can imagine, this is a rough crowd, and these men want to know what their money is getting them. So Gomer is no doubt completely exposed. She is completely naked, completely bare. For all of these men to yell out a dollar amount, they believe Hosea's wife is worth. Can you imagine walking up on this? I cannot. But nonetheless, Hosea sees what's going on, and he begins to press through the crowd. He says, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Until finally he gets to the edge of the platform where Gomer and the auctioneer stand. And now he's got to get the attention of the auctioneer. He says, sir, I'm sir. I don't know if you realize this, but she's actually my wife. 
the auctioneer looks at him and probably says, I don't know who you think she is, but she's mine and she is for sale. Here's the price. Does he have to outbid other bidders? Maybe. Until finally we see that in Hosea chapter 3, Hosea pays 15 pieces of silver and 5 bushels of barley. Listen to me, numbers in scripture have serious significance. 15 speaks of divine rest, while 5 is the number of grace. Listen to me, Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement brings us rest from having to work for our own righteousness and grace because we never could listen to me it gets better not only is it 15 and 5 but it's silver and it's barley silver represents divinity it represents God it represents a, something of heaven something of royal significance while barley represents earth it represents man. Listen to me. Jesus is both God and man. The gospel brings rest and grace. Listen to me. Hosea is prophetically paying for his wife with something he doesn't even know is symbolic of Jesus. The gospel is unfolding before our eyes if we would but take a look. You can't tell me the Bible's boring. You can't tell me it's not living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating and dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the very thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is the only book that while you read it, it's reading you. It's deeper than you think. All of a sudden, Hosea begins to take out the payment. And I'll be honest with you. Had I been lucky enough to be one of the dudes that Hosea said, hey, come with me, man. God says it's time to storm the castle and get my girl. I'd have been like, Jose, I'd have been right there with him. I'd say, Jose, let's go get your girl. I'll be honest, I'd have been cool with that. But it's right about now, when he is going to pay for Gomer, that I would have piped up. I would have said, Jose, hold on a second. Time out. Hosea, newsflash. Wait a second. You're not giving him a thing. I don't know if you forgot, but she's your wife. Like, newsflash, she's already yours. But what you have to understand is what Hosea didn't know, but God did know, was that 750 years later, God would send his son to our planet to purchase back what already belonged to him. Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Listen to me, I don't know if you've acknowledged it yet, but God holds the patent on your life. You're made in his image, and God is more committed to what has been made in his image than I think you realize. He is so committed to not letting one iota, one ounce of that which has been made in his image, let, let stay in the enemy's hands. God is committed. And listen to me, here's some good news. This means, this means, this means right here that if you are a Christian in here tonight, if you are a born again believer, if you have bent your knee at the foot of the cross, that Jesus is enough for all your sin, past, present, and future, you know what this means? It means that you are doubly God's. You're doubly His, because now not only are you His by design, but you're His by purchase. I am doubly God's. Don't you dare let the enemy begin to tell you you don't belong to God. That you're not God. That God wants nothing to do with you. That he's taking his hand off of your life just because you took your hand off your Bible. Don't you dare believe that for a second. You're doubly God's. So Hosea, he gives the payment. 
And all of a sudden, the guards, they come up and they begin to unlock Gomer from her chains and her shackles. Maybe if they have a blanket, they throw it around her and they escort her to the side of the platform where Hosea eagerly awaits the reunion with his wife. Now we can only imagine, hang with me, we can only imagine the thoughts going through Gomer's mind in this moment. She never would have dreamed Hosea would come looking for her, let alone pay the price of the auction. She thinks to herself, no doubt, man, he's, got, he's, about, he's been about as good as he's gonna be. He's about to let me know how much trouble, how much pain I've caused, the side eyes, the weird looks, the, the, the little whispers he's heard as he's walked through the streets about me. He's about to let me know how awkward the bedtime routine has been with our children asking, where's mommy? He's about to let me know how much trouble I've caused him. You can imagine she begins to emotionally brace herself for the tongue lashing she knows she deserves. But if we take a look at Hosea chapter three and verse three, we see that their reunion is not what you think. Hosea chapter three, verse three says this. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore nor belong to another man. Listen to this. So will I also be to you. So will I also be to you. You see, when we would expect rebuke, when we would expect shame, when we expect guilt and condemnation and her past to be collected and thrust and rubbed in her face, what does Hosea do? He says, I don't want to talk about what has been. I want to talk about from this day forward. Listen to me. He is renewing his vows to her here in this moment. Listen to me, some of you, you have been hesitant to come to God because you thought that if I actually give God my sin, he's just gonna rub it in my face. He's gonna give me that one last little rubbing that God's gonna throw my sin in my face. Listen to me, my Bible says God doesn't throw your sin in your face. He says it throws it from the east, is from the west, and he throws it into the, into the sea of forgetfulness. God is not holding your past over your head is what I'm trying to say. And notice what Hosea says. He says this, you're gonna dwell as mine for many days. You know, sometimes we think that God kind of operates with this on a day-to-day -day basis. Hey, if you live good today, I'll bless you. But if you live bad tomorrow, I might just curse you. Hosea doesn't go, hey, we're gonna take this as a, on a day-to-day -day basis. I'll be as faithful to you as you are to me. No, Hosea says, I don't care how faithful or faithless you are. Here's what I'm gonna do. From this day forward, so will I also be to you. God is infinitely more faithful than you are faithless. He will always be there. His hands are open wide. And listen to me, your Hosea has come looking for you tonight. And it would be an absolute shame for you to be in this moment. You have to understand, Hosea is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the husband who comes to purchase his bride out of what she got herself into. Jesus is our Hosea. He is the lover of our soul. He's paid the price and what would be an absolute shame would be for you to be here tonight, much like Gomer, standing on your own platform, standing on a platform of shame, standing on a platform of addiction, 
standing on a platform of guilt, of depression, of anxiety, of suicidal thoughts, of habitual lying, of sexual promiscuity, and for you to think, I don't deserve that, Jesus. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your payment. I don't deserve a future and a hope and a, and a bright tomorrow and to be a new creation. I don't deserve that. I deserve this. I deserve this platform of shame. I deserve to stay addicted. I deserve to stay depressed. I deserve to stay anxious. I deserve to stay in my sexual promiscuity. I deserve to stay, stay a slave to my sin. This is what I deserve. I built this platform moment by moment, mistake by mistake, sin after sin after sin. This is what I deserve. And listen to me tonight, listen to me. If you feel that way, you're right. You don't deserve the love of God. But listen to me, the crazy thing about the love of God is it doesn't seem to care. The crazy thing about the love of God is it doesn't seem to give a second thought as to what you do or do not deserve. Listen to me, the question the love of God has come looking for you to ask you tonight is not, what do you think you deserve? We all know that. The question the love of God went looking for you and has come all this way that got me on an airplane and brought me all the way here tonight to ask you is this, what do you think Jesus deserves? And the truth is this, Jesus deserves what he purchased. He deserves what he paid for. And he's paid for you. He wants you, not a better version of you, not a more Christian version of you, not a version of you that's a little less addicted and a little less anxious and knows a little bit more of the Bible and cusses a little less, but the you, you are right now. And I'm here to tell you tonight, I'm here to tell you tonight, if you will give him the you, you are right now, you will not stay the you, you are right now. Our God will take you from glory to glory, strength to strength, grace to grace. Listen to me, the grace of God can do more in a moment than you could ever do by the grit of your teeth or the work of your hands. It's the grace of God that breaks the yoke of bondage. It's the anointing. Listen to me, stop trying to do it in your own effort. And I believe there are some people here tonight. You can take a seat just for a moment. I believe there are some people here tonight that it's time for you to respond to the question the love of God went looking for you to ask you. And it's will you give Jesus what he wants? He wants your brokenness. It's not that he'll just take it. He wants it. I feel that God's saying this. I can do more with that brokenness than you can. Hey, I can do more with that addiction than you, you, you can. Well, why don't you fork it over? Hey, I can do more with those suicidal thoughts than you can. Why, why don't you give them to me? The Bible says to cast our anxieties on the Lord. Why? Because he cares. God's telling you I care about you tonight. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you did and who you did it with. I care about you. I don't care what the Catholic Church told you. I don't care what your grandma told you. I don't care what lie religion sold you. I care about you tonight. And the question is, will you let God care for you? That's the question. 
And so right now with every head bowed, every eye closed, just for a moment of privacy and concentration, I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to that question. If you would say, Keenan, I have been trying to get my life together in my own strength. I've been doing it all myself. I thought God needed me to chase him. I thought that God only loved people who gave him their full and undivided attention. I thought God only loved the goody two-shoes. I thought God only loved people who knew how to cross their religious T's and dot their religious I's and keep their religious ducks in a row. If you would say, Kenan, I'm that person. I'm the one you're preaching to tonight, Kenan. If you would say, Kenan, I need to give my life to Jesus whether it be for the first time or listen to me, if you are a believer, maybe you're a gomer in here tonight. You've been in the house, but you left. And you'd say, Keenan, I've known the grace of God. I know the love of God, but I have, I got caught up and I got swept away in other things. And tonight, I need to be revived. I need God to, I need a touch from heaven. I need a touch of God tonight. If that's you, When I count to three, whether you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time or you want to say yes to him afresh tonight, there is no shame in this house. When I count to three, would you just shoot your hand up and leave leave it up? I want to to pray for you. One, two, three. Right now, if that's you, hands up, hands up. Hands going up all over this auditorium. Come on, now's your moment. Don't you dare hesitate. Some of you, listen to me, the Holy Spirit's telling me this. Some of you, you are hesitating to raise your hand because of who is sitting next to you. Do not let the pressure of who came with you, let let that keep you addicted. If that's you right now, I want to give another invitation. If that's you, raise your hand right now. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. With every hand raised, I'm going to pray right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for every hand raised to heaven because that hand represents a heart that has just said yes to you, whether it's for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And Lord, I thank you that our Bible says this, that where the enemy comes in like a flood, you raise up a standard against him. And I thank you that that standard is the finished work of Jesus. It is finished is what Jesus said. It is finished. Not it will be finished. Not it's almost finished. Now it's not up it's not up to you to finish it. It is finished. I don't know what your it is tonight, but I'm telling you by faith it is finished. Woo! And I thank you for it right now. I thank you that salvation has come to this house today.